This morning we're going to take a break from our study of the book of Judges. We've been there seven or eight weeks now. Lord willing, we'll return there next week. This morning I want to look at a passage of scripture that we're familiar with. And if you have not committed this passage to memory, I encourage you to do so. The truth contained there is essential for us. That's in Philippians chapter 2. And as you find your place there, I want to read you a couple of verses out of the revelation of Jesus Christ that the Father gave to John concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm reading from Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. John says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Verse 12, John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I read that passage to begin this morning, really for verse 18, where Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. It's the reason why we're here. Each and every Lord's Day we assemble because Christ has triumphed over the grave. Philippians chapter 2, you're familiar with, and I, we've preached through this. I've preached through this entire book here. I was shocked to go back and to see how long ago that was now. It was five years ago, 2017. doesn't seem like that long ago. Time is like an ever-rolling stream marching on, right? We sing that from time to time. And as it marches on, it bears all its sons away. And as those sons are bared away, we, if we are living and experiencing that to the full, we know that we must be prepared 
because our day too will come. Our days are numbered. The Lord knows them. And if he tarries in his return, we will be born away as well. Philippians chapter 2, I want to do two things from this chapter. I want us to see that there are great benefits that come to the people of God from the resurrection of Christ. That's very obvious. Everything that we have has been given to us by him. The second thing that I want to do is consider the benefits that have come upon Christ himself because of his resurrection. And it's that angle or that perspective that we don't often consider. Often when we speak and preach of the resurrection, we rightly want to know what benefits do I receive from the resurrection. And I'm going to talk about several of those. But I want to go beyond that and consider the benefits that Christ received. And as we consider those, just know that he is receiving these in his human nature. Christ, the God-man, in what theologians call the hypostatic union, will never fully fathom that reality, that truth. It is one of these secret things that belong to the Lord. But we can know something of it. We know something of it because God has been pleased to reveal something of it. And when I speak of the benefits to Christ, I'm speaking in regard to his human nature. His being fully God, there was nothing that could be added to him in that sense. But in being fully man as well, because of his resurrection, there were certain things that God bestowed upon him because of his obedience unto death. We're going to see that in Philippians 2. So let me read this chapter, not the chapter, this portion of Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. Because I want us to see the context. There is one of the greatest statements concerning Christ and all the New Testament embedded right here in the second chapter. But it has a context. And that context is to teach us as Christians how to be of lowly mind. How to act with humility. How not to think too much of ourselves or to have as the motivation for what we do in service to Christ be out of selfish ambition or conceit. And I suppose that most of us struggle with that. Most of us have an inward struggle that is a reflection of the flesh and the spirit lusting against one another that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. And in the wisdom of God, he addresses it. And he addresses it in great fashion. So beginning in Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of, the same, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Before we move on, let's just make the point here how much of life as we know it, be it individual life in relationships to those outside the church, your life in relationship to those in your own family, or your life in relation to those inside the church, 
how good and what a reflection of heaven those things could be if we only could be obedient to these first four verses. Realizing that that is the inclination of the, the heart of a believer. There is a desire there. The spirit is willing, right? The flesh is the weak part. So it's based upon this that the Spirit of God then inspires Paul to give a detailed example of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did in not considering himself but esteeming others, in not acting through selfish ambition or conceit, but in acting in great humility. So as we go through these, let's not lose the central point of what we are being taught here. The first thing that I want to do is look at a few. Certainly this is not an exhaustive list. This may not even be the top things that you would put on this list. But I want to list a few things that are a reflection of the things that we as believers receive based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the first point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead secured glorious blessings for his redeemed. What are those blessings? The first thing that I want to list is in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. One of the blessings that has come to the believer based upon the resurrection of Christ. And with each one of these verses, I want you to notice that the blessing is listed, but also the reason that it comes to us is very explicitly stated as being tied to the resurrection of Jesus. So new life or regeneration, according to Paul in Romans 6, verse 4, he writes, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Our new life, our regeneration, having been brought to life, spiritual life from spiritual death, is tied up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ was not raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we would have no hope at all. We would remain in a spiritual state of deadness throughout all eternity, bearing the just wrath and vengeance of a holy God. So that's the first benefit that has come to the believer. New life. Regeneration. Based upon that, Paul would also say in Romans 6.11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word reckon in that 11th verse is an interesting word. It means to consider. It's an accounting word. And it means that you and I are to so consider ourselves alive unto God that we are dead to sin. And it's also just a side note. If you read the book of Romans beginning in the first chapter in the first verse, you read all the way over to the 11th verse of chapter 6, and it's the first imperative command. In other words, the first thing that we're told to do in the entire book of Romans is to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, to reckon ourselves this way. 
The second benefit that comes to the believer based upon the resurrection of Christ is what I've called the power of God at work in us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, embedded in that prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, he says, I am praying that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward you who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How often do you meditate on and consider the fact that the same power that was operative in raising Christ from the dead is the same power that is operative in your life, helping you to be obedient to the scriptures, helping you to bring glory and honor to Christ. It's when we try to do these things in our own strength that we grow weary in well-doing and even leave them undone altogether. It's no coincidence that Paul says, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. So we first have regeneration or new life. Secondly, that new life is infused with the very power of God by his spirit indwelling us helping us to do all things under his glory. But then also the third benefit that has come to believers based upon the resurrection of Christ is that we have once and for all forever been seated in heavenly places. That's the way the book of Ephesians begins in the first chapter. And it also is reiterated in chapter two in those verses that we know so well when Paul comparing the dead spiritual state of the natural man to the activity of God in him when he says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. And again, we could say because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. And we have been seated in heavenly places. But this blessing comes full circle in the life of a believer because we now also have a living hope. The hope that we have as Christians is not a dead hope. The scriptures refer to it as a living hope because the one who has conferred it upon us is alive. And this is what Peter has to say about this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Again, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope he defines as an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So just to recount so far the blessings that come to us based upon the resurrection of Christ, we have new life. We've been regenerated. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead is operative in us. We've been seated in the heavenly places because of our relation to Christ by faith. We have a living hope. But then we also have the hope, which is steadfast, sure, and confident that when this physical body dies, 
that it will again be raised to life and that in a glorified sense. You know, there's a young man that we see every year at the fellowship conference that we go to, have gone now for around 10 years. His name is Tim. He's mentally handicapped. And every year, he will run up to me. Ron knows him. Travis knows him. He will run up to me and just give me the biggest hug. And then he will stand in front of me and talk for 30 seconds to a minute, and I have no idea what he's saying. Can't understand a word. But I smile and nod and say, yes, Tim, yeah. We'll, and every once in a while, I can make out that he's talking something about basketball. I say, yeah, we'll play basketball later. And I was thinking about this this morning. You know, one glorious day, I'm going to be able to stand face to face with him and have a conversation that I can understand. That body of his that is marred by the effects of the presence of sin in the world is going to be gloriously raised and all of the effects are going to be gone and we can finally have a conversation that benefits us both. And it's all because of what Christ has done. So we have this hope of a physical resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul would write to the Romans. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He also writes to the Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Let me summarize all of these things, and I want to use Joel Beakey's words here when he says, From Christ's resurrection springs the spiritual resurrection of his people, from the death of sin to the life unto God by faith and hope. What a glorious message the empty tomb conveys. All the promises and blessings of salvation lie wrapped in this wonderful news. The best news ever heard has come to us from a graveyard. Death is disarmed. Sin is subdued. The world is overcome. Satan is trotted underfoot. The grave is sanctified. Hell is conquered. The old man mortified. God's justice has been satisfied. The curse of the law is buried. Our guilt is paid. Our debt is canceled. God's amen on the all-sufficient work of Christ is loudly declared when he raised his son from the dead. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now I want you to go back to Philippians chapter 2. Let me give one other summary statement here. And remember, these are things that are benefiting us. New life, the power of God in us, the hope of eternal life, a physical resurrection. Let me give you one more quote before we move on. This comes from, from Calvin. He says, although there are many blameworthy things in us, and even though we find nothing but frailty in ourselves... Yet we have a good, firm support to lean on in that our Lord Jesus Christ has called us unto himself and tells us that the things he has received from God his Father are for us. 
And although we do not yet enjoy them to the full, we cannot come short of them. Let me, let me summarize that because some of you were looking at me with a blank stare. I don't want you to miss this. All of the benefits given to Christ, he has in turn bestowed upon us. Everything that we have from him, though we do not fully receive them in this life, I love these words, we cannot come up short of them. We will receive them fully in the next life. So now let me get to my point. All of that was introduction, by the way. Let me get to my point of what benefits did Christ receive because of his being raised from the dead? So this is where Philippians chapter 2 comes in, especially the verse that begins with the word, therefore, God has highly exalted him. But before there can be a high exaltation, there must be great humiliation. And I always want to explain this word carefully for the benefit of the younger people. When we speak of Christ's humiliation, we're not speaking of his embarrassment. That's often the way that we use the word humiliation. We say, well, that humiliated me. That's not what this means at all. Christ's humiliation, far from being his embarrassment, is his great humbling of himself. His making himself extremely low and base, not considering himself to the demise of those around him. So before there can be exaltation, there has to be humiliation. Let's look briefly at that beginning in verse 5 when Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. We know that Christ is eternal. He is not a created being. He has existed eternally, and he always will. Now, if your mind cannot fully comprehend that, you're in good company. I don't know that anyone's mind can fully comprehend that. It's a truth of Scripture that we take by faith and believe and is essential to what we know about Jesus. One of the things that we are, are thinking of here in this verse is that Jesus from eternity past enjoyed equality with his Father. But the message of the gospel is that in due time, a time set by the Father himself, Christ entered into his own creation through the womb of a virgin. That was his first step in being greatly humbled. But I want you to see this phrase. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not consider his equality with God something that he must keep a firm grasp on. He did not consider his equality with God something that he clutched and would not let go of. 
It is something that he freely gave up for a time. Now, we have to be careful. This does not mean that he ceased to be God. We're talking here primarily in regards to his human nature, not his divine nature. It was in his human nature that he himself said, I don't know the time of my return. Only the Father in heaven knows the time of my return. So this is an example of his humbling himself, not considering equality with God something to be grasped. And we see him witness that by that admission. I I don't know. Only the Father knows. If it sounds strange to you to hear Jesus say he doesn't know something, when at the same time we see in the Gospels that he knows the thoughts of other men before they even speak them, just know that this is part of the mystery of his incarnation. This is part of the mystery of him setting aside his full equality with God and submitting himself to his own creation, even unto his own law. We're given even more detail in verse 7 when Paul says he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant. And we know he didn't come with all the pomp and fanfare of an earthly king. He came born in the lowest of conditions and his birth was declared to the lowest shepherds. And he came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so in just a few words, in just a few verses, we have Christ in eternal glory, setting it aside for a time, entering his creation, becoming the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about, and entering into this ministry of reconciliation, becoming indeed the one mediator between God and men. When we get to the ninth verse of this second chapter, you see the word, therefore. What is not clearly written is certainly implied. There is no mention of Christ's resurrection right here in the ninth verse. But everything that follows assumes it. Everything else rests upon that foundation. And so when you see the word, therefore, just know this is the word of Christ's resurrection. He is obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross with all of its, all of its gloom. All of the horrendous nature of Christ's crucifixion. And I'll just remind you of what Isaiah said. To summarize the entire crucifixion of Christ, the broken body and the shed blood, Isaiah would say of him, his visage was marred more than any man. What did he mean by that? What he means is that Jesus was not even recognizable to be human by the time the Romans were through with him. He was a heap of broken, bloodied, battered, torn flesh. Because he was obedient to the point of death. And that gives 
life to verses like, like these that, that say, His Father, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The sinless, perfect, spotless Christ for a time was considered sin. The word made there does not mean that Jesus was made to commit sin. It, may, it means that He was made to be sin. He was the very essence of sin. That's why Jesus would cry out from the cross something that had been prophesied hundreds of years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The holiness of God for a time turned from countenancing Christ to, bearing, to pouring out the full fury of his wrath on him. So much so that he keenly felt being forsaken of his father. And even in that word, I realize we have to be careful. He is forever united in the second, as being the second person of the Trinity, but nonetheless, his experience upon Calvary's cross, having been made sin, was to feel separation from the holiness of God. And it was because of this. That's what the word therefore means. Because of this. Based upon this. Because of his obedience to death. This is what God his father. Did for him. God also has highly. Exalted him. It's the only place in all the New Testament. That this, this verb is used. Theologians call it the superverb, the high exaltation of Jesus. So, what does it mean for Christ to be highly exalted? What does it mean for the one who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, who, who was equal with God throughout all eternity past and set that aside? What does it mean now for him again in his human nature to be highly exalted? Think of everything you know, scripturally speaking, about the meekness of Christ. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was spat upon. He was physically abused, he was slapped. Never once did he raise his voice and defend himself. Never once did he strike back and all of this he was a, a passive sacrifice. The important thing to know is that post-resurrection his father so highly exalted him that the name that was mocked, scorned, ridiculed, even today used as a curse word, that name is above every name. And it means more than to just think highly of the name of Jesus. We should. But the name here corresponds to the nature. It corresponds to the attributes or characteristics. And what the scriptures are saying is that God has so highly exalted his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his human nature. 
and he has given him this name above every name. Now notice the result or the end of this high exaltation and be careful with verse 10. Verse 10 is not an expression of universalism. Universalism being the doctrine or the the thinking that everyone will eventually come to Christ. This is universal confession. It's different. Verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, perhaps that's upon hearing the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And notice how inclusive this is. Notice how far-reaching this is. Of those in heaven, all the angelic host, seeing what the Son, knowing what the Son was in eternal glory, setting it aside, becoming obedient to the point of death, bearing the sin of sinful man, being raised from the dead, that angelic host at the name of Jesus, just like John, we read to begin, is going to bow in humble submission. Recognizing his greatness. The scorn and the ridicule is forever gone. But it's not just the angelic host, those in heaven, and those on earth. All creation here, all of God's creation that was created in his image, all of mankind bowing the knee to Christ. Bowing the knee at, his, at the mention of his name and those under the earth. All the demonic host of Satan. All of those that followed him in his fall out of heaven. When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a flash or a bolt of lightning. All of those fallen angels that Jude tells us and Peter in the second chapter are even now reserved in chains for judgment. All of that angelic host, mind you, not now, but in the time future, will bow the knee to Christ. But it's more than just a physical posture. Physical posture does indeed represent a humbling before someone. But in the super exaltation, the high exaltation of of his son, the father carries this out in two parts. It's not just the bowing of the knee. There is also something coming off the tongue, something that is coming out of the mouth of this heavenly host, this earthly dwellers, mankind, and even the demonic host. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wasn't that the conclusion of Peter's sermon? What some call the first Christian sermon? He gets to the end of that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 and he sums it all up by saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. In highly exalting his son, the father is ensuring that all of creation in heaven, in hell or on earth All of creation 
is going to join in this great chorus for a time of exalting the sacrificial lamb. Christ will forever receive his due. There will not be one created being that goes without confessing, yes, you are indeed the Lord. And notice that this is all done to the glory of God the Father. Wouldn't you be numbered amongst those who in this day of grace and salvation bow the knee and confess Christ as Lord unto the saving of your soul so that those benefits of his resurrection that we begin, that I began with, will flow to you so that you can receive this regeneration, this new life by grace the power of God at work in you, that you would be seated in the heavenly places, given a living hope, and the hope of a physical resurrection from the dead. If you won't do it now, there is a time coming when you will. I understand the sovereignty of God. I understand, to some degree, the responsibility of men. I can't completely put those things together for you, but I hold to them both because the scriptures present both to me, God absolutely, completely sovereign, yet man responsible. They're friends, not enemies. I want to conclude by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then from John 11. Hebrews chapter 12. What do we do with information like Paul has presented to us in Philippians 2? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How so? Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just a side note. Back when we were referring to Jesus setting aside his glory for a time, why did he do that? According to the writer of Hebrews, it was because of the joy that was set before him. He knew the end. This brings to us two, two things. We have a confident dependence upon Christ for everything needful in this life. There is not one thing in this life that you need. And I'm not talking about physical possessions, material possessions. There is not one truth that is needful in this life that Christ has not given. All things pertaining to life and godliness. But it also produces in us a confident expectation. We're dependent now, but we are dependent with great expectation to have every blessing conferred upon us 
at the return of Christ. But let me conclude with John 11. This is one of the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to Martha. This is at right after the death of Lazarus, just before Jesus is raising him from the dead. And Jesus says to her in her grief, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who came into the world. Let me turn that question around and present it to you. Based upon what Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Believe in me, though you die, you will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And this question is directed to you. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his resurrection from the dead, you did indeed declare him to be the son of God with power. We thank you that all of the the benefits that have come to us have come through the surety and the power of his resurrected life. These things that that I spoke of this morning are only applicable to us if Christ has been raised from the dead. And we're here filled with joy to know that our Savior is indeed alive. His work here on earth is finished. He is seated at your right hand and he will one day return in glory when all of creation will bow in submission to him, when all of creation will declare that he is indeed Lord and all of it unto your glory as his and our Father. Lord, I pray you'd be exceedingly gracious, exceedingly gracious to those here who are outside of faith in Christ. Would you draw them unto yourself? Would you show them their great need and his great sufficiency to save them. We give you thanks and praise for this day, this opportunity to yet assemble together as the saints of God, to worship, to encourage one another, to fellowship together, to consider these truths. Lord, would you add your blessing to them? We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.